Good evening, everybody. Um, well, we are now, since the birth of our daughter on New Year's Day, I think starting our seventh week of broken sleep and bad nights. And I must admit, I had a very real fear that when the time came for me to get up and speak this evening, that I would be fast asleep in the pew and I would have to be nudged by some kind person on my side and, and pointed in the right direction. So I'm glad that didn't happen. I'm also glad to have the opportunity to speak to you on this particular Sunday. Um, something you might not be aware of, that if you're a part of a, a preaching team that is working their way through a book like First Kings, there are passages that you probably would quite like to preach on, and there are passages that you definitely would not like to preach on. So that day when you meet up with the other guys and Christoph allocates your passage to you, actually the stakes are pretty high. Um, you could be, as, as I think Gareth was a few weeks ago, left with something like chapter 16, where you have king after king after king, all who are doing evil in the eyes of the Lord, each one worse than the one that went before. And I must say, I found it quite hard to hide my delight when I found out that that was not the passage that I had to preach on. And I was much happier being given this exciting contest, which Anna has already read for us this evening, between Elijah and the prophets of Baal. There's another reason why I'm quite happy to be here on this particular Sunday. It's Valentine's Day, February the 14th, and my responsibilities here at church have probably saved me about 50 pounds on a romantic meal for two somewhere, although actually with our level of insomnia and stress in our house, I think romance is fairly well down the pecking order, so I might have got away without, without that anyway. Before I go any further, let's just pause for a moment and we'll pray. Dear God, uh, we thank you for the opportunity to open up your word and to share it this evening. We think of this man, Elijah, your man in your country at this time in the history of the nation of Israel. Father, he seems to be a man who is full of integrity and in, full of courage man who is able to stand up for you no matter what is going on in the world around him. We pray, Lord, for the help of your Spirit this evening, that there would be something for each of us to take away from 1 Kings chapter 18, that you would bless our time together, and that you would speak to each one. Amen. There is something within us that is drawn towards a contest confrontation. What makes the contest even more intriguing is when an underdog is put up against a much stronger opponent, when someone who in the face of it shouldn't stand a chance puts themselves forward to challenge the favorite with the odds stacked against them. And if by some miracle that underdog should actually win, well surely there is no greater crowd pleaser than that. I was recently fascinated by the heavyweight world title fight between the British man, David Hay, and the gigantic Ukrainian, Valuev. And what made this encounter so fascinating was the vast difference in the size of these two men. 
He stood at a measly six foot three, and Valuev towered over him at a height of seven foot two. He weighed, uh, he weighed in at 15 stone eight, which sounds pretty respectable until you hear that Valuev was 22 stone eight. So I must admit, I and most of the critics didn't give this guy, David Hay, much of a chance. In fact, Hay claims that in the fifth round, he broke his right hand. He wound up a right hook, and he hit this man, Valuev, full square in the jaw. I saw that punch. It was the kind of punch that would have won any other fight. But this Ukrainian, he didn't even flinch, and David Hay's hand was left in bits. And so for the rest of the fight, he ducked and he dived, and with his left hand, he scored points against his opponent. He started the fight with an overwhelming physical disadvantage, and he finished the fight basically fighting with one hand tied behind his back. Well, he overcame, he triumphed, and he put on a performance to silence all of his doubters, including me, to prove that he was the real deal. Well, Elijah had the challenge in chapter 18 to prove to the people of Israel that God was still the real deal. And I think you'll see that Elijah's contest on the surface of it far eclipses anything that David Hay had to come up against. Elijah stands alone. He's got nothing but the clothes on his back and the sandals on his feet. And he comes to take on the royal household with all of its riches and its might. Not only that, but Elijah stands alone against 850 false prophets of Baal and Asherah. And in fact, when you get right down to it, Israel, who had turned their backs on God, who had chosen false gods and immorality, well, Elijah is taking on all of them as well. He stands alone against the nation. But of course, the true contest is not actually between Elijah and any of these men or women. It's actually between Almighty, Sovereign God and these false gods of Asherah and Baal. And so from heaven's perspective, there's actually no contest at all. It's probably about this time around 700 BC, and I think it's hard for us to imagine what kind of a desperate state the nation of Israel is in at this point in our history. It's only a few generations since the relatively godly leadership of King David and from the leadership of King Solomon, which saw wealth and power and influence such as the like of Israel has never seen again. But now, after a series of evil kings, each one worse than the one before, the nation is slipping farther and farther from God, deeper and deeper into all kinds of sin and sexual immorality and worship of foreign gods. Israel, God's chosen people, are morally bankrupt. They are spiritually spent. And it's now three years since Elijah appeared in front of Ahab and announced God's judgment. There shall be neither dew nor rain these years, except by my word. So there is a famine in the land as Elijah returns from his wilderness experience. He would have been passing by maybe bones and carcasses of starved animals. Death is in the air as he meets the emaciated bodies of his countrymen. The nation of Israel is at rock bottom. It's a complete mess. And this is the time for God to call Elijah to reappear onto the main stage. We first met Elijah a few chapters ago, and he was described as the man of faith. 
But now, after his wilderness experience, he has known God's provision, drinking from the brook in the time of drought, being provided with bread by ravens. He stayed with the widow and her son, where the food never ran out, and he even brought the widow's dead son back to life. So after his discipleship training at the end of chapter 17, it ends with him being declared the man of God. And now through Elijah, God is about to go toe-to-toe with Baal and bring his people back from the brink. As we work our way through the chapter, I'd like us to focus on three things. Firstly, a quick character study of this man, Obadiah. If we're disciples of Jesus Christ, what does Obadiah teach us about taking our stand for God? The second thing is the contest itself. Exactly what does God have to do to convince you that he alone is worth following? And finally, a sobering look at how God views idolatry and how he dealt with these false prophets. So God must come to Elijah and said, it's time to face, to, to head back and to face Ahab. But this time, um, it, it's a daunting prospect going back to, to face Ahab in these times, but he's going armed with a promise that the rain is on its way. Now, the first person that Elijah runs into is this man, Obadiah. And the scholars tell us that he was King Ahab's right-hand man. He's the palace mayor or estate manager. So he's likely to have a position of power and wealth and prestige. He's a vital cog in the middle of a very powerful, pagan, secular machine. And yet, Obadiah seems to lead this double life. He is a devout believer in the Lord. His master is sold out on idol worship. His master's wife, Jezebel, was merely killing off the prophets of the Lord, the same God that Obadiah served. I think you'll agree that Obadiah finds himself in a particularly dangerous and tricky position. Maybe something like a Christian today being in the inner circle of Kim Jong-il's North Korea. And yet he is trying to remain faithful, faithful in a faithless environment. In secret, he has gone away and he's hidden a hundred prophets from Jezebel in two caves, and he's keeping them alive by providing them with food and water. It all sounds pretty good for Obadiah so far, but now, as he meets with Elijah, comes the moment of his downfall. And the scholars in the commentaries that I've read, well, they, they give Obadiah a pretty hard time, and yet I think we can have a lot of sympathy. He's very like us. He's a follower of God, trying to do his best in the fabric of a secular society. He's out on a mission for the king, trying to find some sustenance for the king's livestock. The king has gone one way, and Obadiah has gone the other. And he stumbles across Elijah, the man of God. Obadiah recognizes him instantly, and you can see that he bows down before Obadiah. And he, er, he, Obadiah sorry, bows down before Elijah, and he gives him respect. Elijah says to Obadiah, go and tell the boss, I need a word. Suddenly, we see Obadiah floundering. He starts to come up with some nonsense, some unfounded fear, that if he heads off to look for Ahab, then Elijah will just vanish into thin air, putting his own life in danger with the king. This is garbage. It's just an excuse. Elijah is not some phantom that has been elusive or evasive these years. He has merely been under the protecting hand of his heavenly father. A moment ago, Obadiah was bowing down in reverence, 
But now it seems that he doesn't even trust Elijah. These guys are supposed to be on the same side. But if you look at it, actually Obadiah does have a very genuine reason to fear. If he announces the arrival of God's man, he's going to come down on God's side before his earthly master, King Ahab. He would have to let his faith come out into the open. And as such, he could stand to lose his job, his wealth, his power, maybe even his very life. The book of Kings, as we've been discovering on previous Sunday evenings, seems to be all about the sovereignty of God. That ultimately, whatever appears to be going on on the surface of it, God is in complete control of everything. But Obadiah has not got that yet. He still seems to fear Ahab more than he fears the Lord. He believes maybe that if it comes down to a fight, Ahab is is going to triumph. He believes that the power, position, and prestige given him by Ahab is better than any blessing that God could provide. Obadiah was torn between a secular world where he he was favored, he was prospered, he was self-sufficient, continuing in this or obeying and declaring his allegiance to God, leaving him valuable and exposed in the world's eyes, but in reality, safe in the hands of his sovereign God. In this country, and hopefully in, in our lifetime, we may never face the same loss or persecution that would have threatened Obadiah if he publicly sided with God. But we, no less than he, are God's people living and working in a secular world. And when we have the opportunity, when we are called to take a side, to give a reason for the hope that we have in Jesus, let's not be caught floundering like Obadiah, although I'm sure we can all sympathize with him. But let us remember who is the king. Remember ultimately who is sovereign. Whether it's playing your part in an office debate, or maybe explaining your decision-making in a biblical context before non-Christian friends or family, when you are given your chance, don't be found ashamed or afraid of making your stand for Jesus Christ. Well, Obadiah must eventually obey because he leads Elijah to Ahab. And King Ahab, he has had three years to think about this, but he still hasn't got it. Elijah reappears and he is still trying to shoot the messenger. There's no sense of any personal responsibility for the mess that the country is in. Elijah, is that you, you troubler of Israel? Well, Elijah wastes no time in telling Obadiah exactly like, in telling Ahab exactly like it is. Ahab, you are the reason there is no rain. You broke the commandments. You have forsaken God. You are worshipping other gods. Elijah has been promised that the drought is going to end. But not yet. First, there must be a public display of God's strength. It is time for the contest to begin. And so Elijah tells Ahab to assemble the prophets and get the people together. And word begins to spread among the people, and they are quick to gather around Mount Carmel. Elijah has challenged Ahab. He challenges the prophets. And now he puts his challenge out to the people of Israel. Some of you follow Baal. Some of you follow Asherah. Perhaps some of you are even half-heartedly still trying to follow Yahweh. 
It's time to sort this out. It's God or it's Baal. Time to put up or shut up. Time to get off the fence and sit on one side or the other. The great challenge has been put down in the response. Silence. The people say nothing. The hour of decision comes and the people linger quietly in the neutral zone. Well, Elijah goes on to outline the plan anyway. There's going to be two sacrifices, two bulls cut up to make two offerings to be burnt. But there's no match. So who will provide the flame? Baal, the god of fertility, of crops, of productivity. Baal, who should have been sorting out the rain in the first place. Well, surely he would have lightning in his arsenal of weapons. Well, the people recognized this, and now they did speak. They said, yes, that's a good idea. Let's do that. Let's remember that they would have been ready for this. They'd lived through three years of drought and hunger and death. They'd had no answer from the false gods. They'd seen that their false prophets were impotent. And the people would have been desperate at this stage to try anything. And to add insult to injury, we read that while they starved, the prophets of Baal and Asherah were being entertained and eating at the queen's table. I'm sure that despite everything that the nation was going through, that here at the queen's table, they would still have had access to the best food and to the choicest wine. So you can imagine how the people on the streets were beginning to feel about that. And so the action begins. And Baal's prophets are the first to make their play. They build an altar and start their chanting, their wailing, their screaming. They dance, they beat themselves, they cut their bodies until blood runs. It must have been quite a sight. And Elijah here, he is the master of ceremonies, and he's playing to the crowd. And we see an example of Elijah mocking his opponents. As the prophets and priests are going at it, hammering and tongs, giving it their all, Elijah's on the sidelines, and he's shouting out sarcastically, What? No fire? Maybe Baal is meditating. Perhaps he's deep in thought. Maybe he's on a journey. Perhaps he's on a snooze. You need to wake him up. In fact, some commentators that I read actually feel that the closest translation goes something like this. Don't disturb him. I think he's on the toilet. So the, the prophets, they went at it harder and harder after they heard this. They started early in the day, noon came and went, and now it was evening. Nothing. The sacrifice was not even singed. And eventually, after all their effort, they flopped down, exhausted, panting, humiliated, utterly defeated. By evening, the day of Baal is coming to an end, and now through Elijah, the day of God is about to begin again. It's Elijah's turn, and he begins by setting up a new altar. He wants nothing to do with that altar which had been consecrated to Baal. And so symbolically, he takes 12 stones representing the 12 tribes. The altar represents the nation of Israel, and Carmel points to an even greater demonstration of God's mercy and grace, the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. We've seen Elijah mocking and, and shouting abuse at his opponents. Now we see him showboating, it's not enough for the sacrifice to be consumed by flames from heaven. First of all, he has it thoroughly doused in water with 12 big jars poured all over it until it's absolutely swimming. He wants the people to be in absolutely no doubt. So he loads the dice against himself as a guarantee against fraud. 
For Elijah, there's no chanting, no screaming, no bloodletting, just a simple prayer and a plea that the hearts of the people would be turned back to God again. In an instant, the fire comes. The sacrifice and everything around it are utterly consumed, and the people bow down. They shout out, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. And God is the victor. He has triumphed. What this section of the passage teaches us is, is not very complicated. You're going to be glad to know it's not going to take me another 10 minutes or so to, to tease it out and to explain it. It speaks for itself. Are we following other gods? Maybe not Baal or Asherah, but what are the things that take up our time, our attention, our money, the desires of our hearts? Are we still maybe sitting on the fence and trying to have a toe in, in both camps? God has done all that he needs to do and all that he will do to display his power and his love to us. Elijah's story tells us to stop messing about, not to waste any more time. If God is God, then we are to follow him and to do it with our whole hearts. And the final bit of the chapter that I want us to look at, as I mentioned, it's a sobering incident. It's one of those unsavory episodes that we, we maybe might wish wasn't in our Bibles at all. With victory assured and the people now on board, Elijah has one final bit of business that he needs to take care of. He calls on the people to round up all these false prophets, to throw them into the Kishon Valley, and there they are to be slaughtered. Sometimes the teaching of the Old and the New Testament can seem a world apart. And I must admit that I often struggle with a lot of the bloodshed that we, that we read about in the Old Testament. But Jesus knew and accepted the whole of the Old Testament. He was okay with it, and so we must try and understand it too. And maybe perhaps the best way I can make any sense of an incident like this would, would be something like, imagine, imagine I got sick and uh, I was getting pain in my tummy and I was losing weight and I was going off my food and I got a bit worried about myself so I, I went down to my GP and the GP heard my story and he was concerned too so he referred me off to the, see the surgeons and they gave the surgeons my history and they did the examination and they sent me for various tests and scans and the time came for them to talk about the results of the investigations and they sat me down and said, I'm sorry, it, it's bad news. There's a rapidly growing mass inside your abdomen. It's in your bowel. I think it's cancer. But don't, don't worry. We'll, it, it's very aggressive, but uh, you know, we'll, we'll plan for a bit of minor surgery. We'll, we'll try and get rid of a few of those cells for you. We'll, we'll try and tidy things up a wee bit. Do you think I would be happy or satisfied with their treatment plan? Of course not. I want radical surgery for that sort of problem. I don't want minor surgery. I would say to the surgeon, I want you to get rid of every last abnormal cell. In fact, I want you to take out of the surrounding normal tissue as well. To think like that, that it's not an extreme action. It's, it's actually essential. It's wise. Elijah is dealing with an immoral, hostile, 
anti-God malignancy. And he feels that the only way to protect the rest of the body is to remove it completely. And perhaps we would do well to be no less ruthless with any false gods or idols in our own lives. So this chapter that we've looked at has seen just a complete reversal of fortune for the people of Israel. At the beginning, things could not possibly get any worse. Famine, drought, godless idol worship, and persecution of the faithful few. But look at the turnaround that has happened in these verses. At the end, the first rain clouds are on the horizon. The land is about to be restored. Spiritually, the people have already been restored. And the last scene is such a hopeful picture of what the future could hold. King Ahab heading off onto the, into the distance in his chariot. But look who he's following. He's following on behind Elijah, the man of God. The man of God is leading the way. That is the way that it, it should have been. Did this display of God's power cause the people to turn to him and away from foreign gods for good? Are the kings of Israel now motivated to serve God and his people rather than themselves? Did this incident change the course of history for the people of Israel? You would really like to think so, but you probably already know the answer, and you'll have to come back next week to find out what happens next. Let's uh, take a moment uh, just to pray together. Dear God, we are your people in this generation. And we too live in a world of moral and spiritual decline. Help us to stand up for you and always be ready to give a reason for the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. Amen. We're going to close our service together this evening by singing a, a hymn of commitment and dedication. We'll stand and sing, Take my life and let it be all you purpose, Lord, for me.